coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen. Star Wars sequel gets a director and 200% more lens flare. Chinese New Year is here, and we look at the films The Tower and Cloud Atlas. This is East Screen West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome back to another edition of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and lots of stuff in between. It is Wednesday, January 30th, 2013. As usual, I'm your host, Paul Fox. And joining me, as always, from his super secret location, slightly medicated, is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hello, everybody. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, sir. How are you feeling? Uh, it's just uh, coughing a little bit still, uh, better than last week, I suppose, because, you know, when you have a, a throat thing and, and when you start coughing, it's supposed to be the, the end of the road, so to speak, right? But, yeah. but that, that end seemed to be, seemed to last forever. Mm. Yeah, I've been there, been there, kind of still there. <coughs> yeah, uh, so a, apologies a that, um, apologies, I will be, I might be and probably will be, uh, coughing throughout the show. My voice will be a little, little coarse than usual. Mm, yeah, well, it's certainly understandable and forgivable. Um, you know, one of the things I've noticed being here and, and you know, working through colds here in Hong Kong is that it seems to me that as the pollution has gotten worse here, it the recovery time is longer. I, I keep, I'll, I'll have a hacking cough longer after I'm sick, you know, so I, I, like, I won't be sick, but for a few days, but then for a couple weeks after, I'll still have this hacking cough that just doesn't want to seem to go away and part of me wonders if it's because our air quality has declined in recent years oh i'm sure i'm sure the the air quality has to do with you know um worse uh, worse um um what's the system looking for a respiratory system Mm. uh it has led to a lot of respiratory system problems uh among among the population so um, of course, yeah, I'm sure it's, it's, uh, it's a huge, it leaves a huge effect on yeah. uh, But coverage. for all our complaining and our whining, I mean, thankfully we're not in Beijing. Exactly. Right. My God. Yeah, so um, those guys have it really, really bad. You wouldn't want to be there uh, anytime in the near future, for sure. But um, that is neither here nor there. We are not here to talk about Beijing nor air quality. We are here to uh, talk about some films. So what are we going to be looking at this week? Uh, for East Screen, we'll be looking at the Korean disaster film, The Tower, uh, from the director of Sector 7. So clearly, uh, it's meant for great things. Uh, and for West Screen, we'll be talking about uh, Cloud Atlas from the Wachowskis, No Longer Brothers, uh, and uh, Tom Tickwer, the, uh, the uh, German director. Yeah, what do we call them? The Wachowski siblings, I guess. Yeah, just the Wachowskis or Wachowski siblings. Is the proper term. Um, so yes, all of that and much more coming up right after... <laughs> A very little bit of news. All right. So, uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we've got a little bit of news 
um, touching on uh, sort of the geeky side of the Force, and that is the Star Wars sequel has gotten an official director um, in the form of J.J. Abrams. Now, this topic's been talked to death in the blogosphere. Um, it, the news is a little bit under a week old at the time we're reading it, so I don't really want to get too much into um, <clears throat> excuse me, the news itself. There has been a lot of discussion. A lot of people are happy. A lot of people are unhappy. I'm kind of on the fence about it um, because, you know, it's really going to going to have to wait and see what he does with it um he's you know he's he's certainly a very competent director and and he's been very successful in the franchises that he's both taken over and that he's created so rather than getting into sort of the nuts and bolts of is he good for the series is he bad for the series um i'd rather i i thought it'd be better to go down somebody else's point of view on this so i, I did some searching and i found this um particular article from uh, the Metro, which is, I guess, a UK-based uh, publication. So uh, let me throw a quick shout-out to the chat room again. I think we have uh, Hong Kong Dave in the chat room, who is uh, based over there in the UK, so maybe he's familiar with this publication. But this is coming from Sunday, the 27th of January, from uh, the, the Metro Online, and it is uh, by an author named Ann Lee cited as Metro's online resident film and music geek. So those are stout qualifications, if I've ever heard any. Um, and uh, this article is entitled, Top 10 Reasons Why J.J. Abrams is a Good Choice for Star Wars Episode 7. Uh, reason number one, he's a fan. Okay, so he's admitted he's a fan of Star Wars. Um, and, you know, they've compared this with the idea that he's not a big fan. He wasn't a big fan of Star Trek. And he managed to get a hold of that. And in some people's mind, you know, he did a fairly decent job with that. Um, so there's that. Uh, number two, George Lucas has given him his stamp of approval. Now, this can this is a good thing in terms of the, you know, the idea of the, the passing of the torch, so to speak, uh, from one director to another. And in some people's minds, that's a good thing. But the last thing I remember George giving a stamp of approval was Jar Jar Binks and... Uh, that's probably maybe not such a good thing. He also gave a stamp of approval to movies like Howard the Duck. So, um, also, uh, the, the nuclear refrigerator in Indiana yeah, Jones. The, the nuke the fridge, right? Which has yeah. re replaced the popular meme of Fonzie jumping the shark. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, uh, take that for what it's worth. The third point is that he has the approval of Star Wars fans. Um, to some extent, I, I do know some fans who are not real happy uh, about the news as i said i'm still on the fence um so mm, uh, that has has yet to be seen uh next one is he's a sci-fi pro now this one i can't really argue with um he's had his fingers in lots of sci-fi um i was a huge fan of the tv show fringe um with the exception of maybe this last final season where i think they kind of got a bit muddy um but still fairly happy with the series overall uh, kind of liked Star Trek, um, but um, I, I, you know, disliked the time travel aspects and the and sort of the way they chose to reboot it rather than just retell it. Uh, really liked Super 8, you know, sort of his throwback to Spielberg movies. So, you know, the likelihood that he will do something that makes me happy personally is pretty high. Um, you know, and, and with, with his background in sci-fi, I think... He'll be fairly, 
he's a fairly good choice to be honest with, you know, the material and to know, you know, because there's so much other stuff out there. You've got the Clone Wars TV series that's going on right now. You've got, um, you know, you've got all this extended lore and things that would he'd have to be aware of uh, in pushing through any kind of, you know, system of continuity or characters or relationships. And maybe he'll do a better job or maybe he'll just throw the entire universe into some kind of wormhole and we'll end up back at episode one. <laughs> you know, anything's possible, I guess. <clears throat> um, says he's already proved he can breathe life into flagging uh, film franchises. Again, pointing to things like uh, Impossible Mission and Star Trek. He's good at making sci-fi films with heart. I don't know what that really means. Um, you know, you don't, a lot... you don't like Super 8. You know, that's not just a sci-fi film. It's a sci-fi film with were very um, emotional under, undercurrent. Yeah, I, I would agree. I love Super 8, but a lot of people didn't like it. Um, it got kind of mixed reviews um, from, from critics. Um, well, th- well, go go from your own perspective, right? And also, Star Trek also has a... has a uh, Even the beginning, the, just the opening has a very strong emotional undercurrent. Well, well. I'd, I'd agree with the beginning. I'd say Star Trek, the film has a lot less heart than some of the original material of Star Trek. I think it's got a lot more lens flare and a lot more big explosions and things as you get into the film. Um, and thus far, what I've seen of the, the, the Star Trek Into Darkness trailers, it seems like we're getting a lot more of the same, but um, I don't know, we'll have to, we have to wait and see. Uh, he's good at following complex points. Okay, I'll give him that. Yeah. Uh, he's but good at... Star, Star Wars has never been about con- complex storytelling. Yeah, this is absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe he can bring that to bear. Um, he's good at, uh, multitasking. Okay. Yeah. He's secretive. Um, it says he belongs to the Christopher Nolan school for secrecy. Um, and yeah, I guess, you know, that's, it makes that, sense. that's, that's pretty good. Uh, but I mean, if you're working with big name properties, you kind of have to be right. I mean, wasn't, uh, didn't they name like, what was it? Uh, Empire or something it was named Blue Harvest. <laughs> because they were trying to keep it a secret back when they were filming. Um, and he has the right initials. It says oh, J.J. Abrams and Jar Jar Binks. Coincidence? Uh, let's hope so, because uh, the last thing we need is more Jar Jar Binks. Um, so there you have it. Top 10 reasons why J.J. Abrams is a good choice for Star Wars Episode 7. Not the reasons of our particular show, but coming from the Metro. I'm sure you'll find many more lists like this popping up all over the place, both for and against Mr. Abrams. Uh, the number one reason in my book is that we're going to get so much more lens flare, we can call it the lens flare side of the Force. Uh, and that's just a poor attempt at humor, so I apologize. <laughs> all right, uh, let's move on to some little bit of e-screen news. Uh, Kevin, you've got some news about a movie called Sex Duties Unit. Now, those three things... In, in that sequence, already sound like the making of a Category 3 movie. So what is the, what is the scoop on this particular film? It is, indeed. It's not, it's not, a, it's not new, new uh, at all because, I mean, the film's been in production for about two weeks now. I think they're wrapping up production soon. But yes, after the success of Bulgaria, um, director Pano Chan uh, quickly decided to um, make another category free local comedy but uh, however he is actually not directing this he only um, 
I think he he's producing it and he probably co-wrote it. Um, and uh, it's a story. Sex. Du- it's called SDU Sex Duties Unit. Um, SDU actually, for those who don't know, is is actually the Hong Kong equivalent of a SWAT team. So yes. it's so it's about. So the film is about a team of SWAT members. Um, because again, the SDU, you have to go through a lot of background check, and you have a, you're very, um, you're held on to like the highest, highest moral standards, so to speak, right? But when uh, morale is low, among these guys, uh, this this team of SDU members, uh, led by Chapman Toe, uh, and also um, uh, comprising of uh, uh, Sean Yu, director Matt Chow, and uh, also Derek Zhang. Um, their superior, played by Michael Wong, tells them that they have to go and take a break. So uh, the the four men, the four SDU members, uh, apparently decide to go to Macau to uh, for a weekend of debauchery, and that's that's essentially the the um, concept of Sex Duties Unit. The film is directed by Gary Mack, not the um, head of the Hong Kong's uh, Broadway Cinematheque. That's a different Gary Mack. This is a Gary Mack who was a longtime assistant director and also directed uh, a few minor films including the um very mysterious bar paradise which only played in one cinema in hong kong and has only been available on a video on demand service it has never been uh released on video because it was so bad i believe it was um it beat the record for the lowest grossing film in hong kong history for a while um but yeah it it, it sounds like a ton of fun and the film's been shooting for a couple of weeks and uh it's almost done and uh yeah, uh, I look very much forward to this. I don't know about you, Paul. What do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Chapman Toe is always a big draw. And uh, the, the understanding, too, for those not familiar with um, Michael Wong and his work, um, he, as an actor, got famous from, you know, sort of the a serious take on the SDU shows, right? Yes, the SDU films, like yeah. First Option and so, Final this is going to be sort of like a I don't know, like a sort of a national lampoon style parody uh in in, in many aspects i'm guessing that it's going to be i mean cuz when you talk about chapman toe and being in a cop film the one that springs to my mind is um the infernal affairs parody from i think is it wong jing uh, yeah. love is a many stupid thing i think is the name of that something one. like that yeah something like that yeah um and that one was you know, pretty okay for a Wong Jing movie. It was pretty does funny. It, I don't think Pano Chen is, is going to make a uh, a spoof film. I think it's going to be uh, something that's more in the line of, a, hopefully it's more in the lines of Bulgaria. Mm. Uh, I think. That, that's certainly what it seems to be. And yeah, it's kind of like Due West, but you know, a more local theme and with cops and I guess a bigger challenge because I, I think the entire challenge is how did these guys who are, 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 you know, um, held to, to a higher moral standard than everyone and who has a tougher time. It's not like us going to Macau. For these guys, going to Macau, they have to go through a lot of challenges and uh, obstacles. And, and, you know, I think the whole, the whole exercise sounds, uh, sounds kind of fun. Hmm. Well, we'll have to wait and see. When is the release? No idea. The film, uh, it's just wrapping up the shoot, I think, before Chinese New Year. Um, so it uh, looks like it might have the same slot or a similar slot as uh, Bulgaria. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll have to... There, there's no way it's going to get a, a film festival release, right? It seems too tight. I too think that's tight. the schedule. Yeah. But you never know. Pao Chun films, he finishes them very quickly. Um, who knows when they come out, right? Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll look <coughs> forward to that. I think that's going to do it for our news. So why don't we move on and uh, talk about our films?
So we've got one East screen film for this week, and it is a Korean film. Um, that is the super blockbuster mega hit coming out of Korea called The Tower, or simply Tower in Korean. So, Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about The Tower? Um, the Tower, actually, the, the basic concept is, is very simple. A, a, huge, um, a huge skyscraper. Uh, a, a fictional skyscraper, if I may add, uh, in Seoul, um, called the uh, uh, Tower Sky, which is kind of it looks kind of like the um, what's the tower in Kuala Lumpur? You know, the the one that you know the two stands up and there's a big bridge in the middle. Oh, I know the one you're talking about. I don't know the name of it. Yeah. Anyway, the similar design, a skyscraper of similar design, goes up in flames, and and these innocent people. Um, have to essentially uh, survive or make their way down with the help of a very super duper heroic um, heroic uh, firefighter. Uh, uh, that's the, the the Patronus Towers in Kuala uh, Lumpur. Okay, so Kuala I guess Lumpur. they liked Harry Potter. <clears throat> okay, so that's the basic basic concept. But of course, it won't be a plot synopsis about talking about the characters because there are uh, uh, several characters in the film. The main ones is. Um, Lee Dae Ho, a single father, and the essentially the, the head of the maintenance unit of the building, um, who uh, who is very hardworking and really knows what he's doing, and is also uh, in love with um, the restaurant manager of the building, uh, Yong Hae, starring uh, Song Ye Jin, a uh, very big Korean actress. Um, and of course, everything is on Christmas Eve, so so the owner of the building is holding a huge party um, that uh, even involves. Um, uh, helicopters uh, spraying down fake snow. Uh, of course, without knowing the dangers of trying to fly helicopters near big skyscraper that are 120 stories tall, the helicopter, one of the helicopter crashes into the building and causes a, fly, a fire, um, trapping many of the people in the party. And uh, yeah, um, essentially creating this huge crisis where all these um, people up on the top, like, say 90th floor or so, I have to make their way down before the the building collapses uh, from the fire. Uh, that's the very basic um, concept, and I didn't want to talk about too much, too many about characters because um, there's a there are a lot of characters, and I'll tell you why I don't really need to know all of them. Uh, but first, the film is the latest from the director of Sector Seven, uh, which we did a Christmas commentary, uh, or a commentary last year, Halloween Halloween commentary, yeah, a Halloween commentary. So clearly, it was a uh, very much a, a film that uh, earns a lot of giggles and 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 and, and snark. Um, thankfully, this one is a little bit better than that. Um, the film that may remind you that this, the tower may remind you of is Heyunde, which is uh, another big budget um, disaster film from Korea. That one's about the big tidal wave that wipes out a coastal town. But unlike that film, which took an hour and a half to get to the big wave. This one takes a lot less time to get to the fire, thankfully. It's about 35, 40 minutes or so uh, of all exposition. It is exactly what the advertising promises. It shows you um, the, the the exposition stuff, the romantic, the romantic comedy stuff, and then it shows you the fire. So it, it delivered exactly what it promises. So you can't really say that it's disappointing um, for delivering what the, the ads promise. Um you know, there, there are very there are a lot of flaws. You know, because people in disaster movies they always act dumb. 
And the fact that we're sitting in cinema and we, we're thinking, oh, yeah, they should act that way. That's smart. We should, they should act that way. They're dumb. It's because we're sitting in a cinema and we just pay 45 bucks to sit in an air conditioning room watching these people who are, you know, theoretically in, in a building on a 90th floor that's going up in flames. So clearly they are acting a little more irrational than we would. So, you know, it's not like the creators were doing anything wrong by trying to emulate these situations, you know, plus people, in, like I said, people in disaster movies in Korea or in America or in Asia or in Europe, they always act dumb. So um, they're just, they're just uh, emulating each other. So it's all part of the genre. The biggest problem, however, with the film uh, is that the exposition is a complete waste of time because the director loses focus of the characters. Um, the film sets up uh, other characters in the building, including a, a, a kind uh, uh, cleaning woman uh with a son in college and she's working really hard to 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 pay his way through college but then halfway through the film you don't you don't know where he went or she went uh she shows up once in a while and then like when they're going up and down the floors you don't even see any close-ups of her so you don't even know where she is uh or there's like an elderly couple uh who is just falling in love again but again you lose you, you have no idea where they are half the time um at some points, I need I need like a like a scorecard. Like I didn't even know who was still alive until the very end when like when like you know people hugging in slow motion. It's like oh yo oh she made it. Oh I, I had no idea. Um, so yes, all all those thirty five minutes, forty minutes or so really seemed pointless when all that to do was um, focus on a romantic comedy portion. Uh, and those two characters are essentially the main characters, and we we know where they are at all times because they are the the prettiest people in that group and also the, the main characters. So um, the rest, the, you know, those 20 minutes of side stuff felt really pointless. Um, I didn't really feel anything for them because the film was so sloppy in balancing these characters and the spectacle. So, um, so you know, I couldn't even follow them, so it's hard for me to care about them. I, I hate to sound heartless, but it's really the film abandoned them before I did. Okay, so um, there are social commentary uh like for example, the the fire department chief uh, uh, demands or orders the firefighter to first rescue the VIPs. Um, very China thing, by the way. Um, you know, there's the thing about the the heartless um, CEO who just cares about his investment uh, over over safety and things like that. Um, but in the film, in the end, it's really all about spectacle and blowing up stuff and melodrama and and uh, romantic comedy and romance. And to the point where you know none of that really. None of that social commentary stuff pays off. It's like, okay, here we did it. We did it. We throw in a few spots and then nothing happens to these people. They don't really follow up on it. So it just felt like, oh yeah, we should put it in and then and then we'll just keep telling our our story. Or someone told them to put some in and then they'll just keep telling the story. Um so it doesn't again, it kind of feels pointless in the end. Um but actually the the ultimate problem <coughs> excuse me. The ultimate problem with the tower is that it's better than Sector Seven. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense, right? Because, <coughs> excuse me. Because there's not that much to make fun of, but the film isn't good enough either to enjoy. So you're just kind of sitting there waiting for the film to end, uh, and you can't really make fun of it because yeah, it's really sad, and you know it's really not that bad, but it's really not that good either. So you're just sitting there and trying to get through the whole experience, um, and you know. Medi- mediocrity to some people is good, but to me it's it's kind of unengaging. So, um, but you know, there's plenty to, to work to I guess work seeing here. The special effects are good enough. 
for a film this size. Um, if you like the actors, uh, for example, um, Song Kyung Gu, a very respected actor, serious actor, uh, plays the heroic firefighter, and he's you know he's good. And So Ye Jin, So Ye Jin is good, even though for some reason her white outfit uh, stays impeccably clean, even though when she, even when she's like running through a fire. Yeah, I don't know how that makes sense. Um, so yeah, um, I guess if you enjoy disaster movies or you you like any of the stars, um, yeah, it's uh, worth TVing. Paul. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> um, this is this film is really such a standard catastrophe formula. It's almost like they simply picked a color by numbers or a paint by numbers or, a, you know, uh, uh, a, a choose your elements from uh, column A and column B uh, from a listing of different movies. I mean, start, yeah. in, in, in the Wikipedia entry, it, it talks about the director was really looking um, to, to, do a, to do the towering inferno. And that's basically what this film is. But, I mean, it's got all the same archetypes. If you've seen a movie like um, Airport or you've seen a movie like uh, The Poseidon Adventure, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, or even something like 2012, right? It doesn't matter what the context of the catastrophe is. What you end up getting is a lot of spectacle and some very cardboard characterizations of things. And it's so bad in this movie that it's almost like you might might as well just say let's give an acting award to the spectacle because the spectacle is is a lot more impressive than the characters or the performances <laughs> that you're going to see and in some ways becomes just a character itself um now that being said uh this isn't a terrible film but it's you know it is just to so standard that if you've seen a lot of films like this, you might be very bored. Um, if you're not impressed by a lot of CGI and spectacle, you might be very bored. Now, for somebody, some, for people like us who've seen you know, lots of these kinds of films before, you know, we look on it and we him and haw, but for a younger audience, you know, particularly a Korean audience who doesn't have the exposure to these kinds of films, I think they'll welcome this. You know, this will be... A, a, a somewhat new and refreshing experience if they don't have a lot of exposure to some of the older Hollywood films and only the more recent ones like a 2012 or a Day After Tomorrow or something. Um, but even so, uh, it is interesting to see a non-Hollywood version of the Hollywood formula um, because I think, you know, this is, you know, you can look at films like um, Hyundai and I'm trying to think of some of the others, maybe The Host or well, The Host is more of a monster movie, really. Uh, Super Typhoon, right? Mm. Um, and this film, I think, gets the closest to the Hollywood formula uh, successfully. You know, I think that 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 pound for pound, this could compete with uh, some of the Hollywood stuff out there because it's got a very high production value. And despite some of the flat characterizations, it's a popcorn movie, and it's pretty easy to get through. Uh, it's a Christmas movie, so yay! You yay. Know, if, you, if, you're, uh, if you're looking for another Christmas <laughs> film to watch, and you're not into the Charlie Brown Christmas or How the Grinch Stole Christmas, you've got a, 
uh, how the Koreans burned Christmas, right? Um, but uh, basically, you can sit down and you can have fun picking who you expect to live and who you expect to die. Now, here's the interesting thing. You might be right, but you're not always going to be right. Because I picked a bunch of people. I said, up, oh, that guy's dead, that guy's dead, that girl's dead, that lady's dead. You know, this one's going to live, that one's going to live. And I got a lot of them wrong. Because what this film lacks is the Western sense of comeuppance, right? So, and I won't give any spoilers away, but there's a lot of people you'll look at and you'll go, oh, this person is, you know, this person has a rich, snotty attitude, or this person treats people like a jerk, or this person's just out for himself. And in a standard Western film, you know, of this kind of genre, you know that by the end of the film, that person's going to get their comeuppance because that's, you know, that's the Western narrative. The The people who are jerks, the people who are bad people can't survive. It's the good people, the nice people, right? The, 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 the good protagonists, the innocent protagonists, they're the ones who make it through. And this is where this movie kind of turns to the left because it doesn't follow that standard Hollywood formula. And it makes me wonder if this is more of the, you know, the director's choice, or maybe this is more of the Korean sensibility that, you know, it's not always that the, you know, the, the jerks, um, the jerks don't make it out. You know, sometimes nice guys do finish last. Um, so I think from that aspect, there's a little bit of freshness there from some, you know, if you're, if you're a Westerner who's, uh, seen a lot of these films but by that same token you're gonna feel a little bit disappointed at some of the people you expect and you kind of root to die that's a bad thing to say i guess <laughs> but uh when, when that doesn't happen you're gonna be like what? what what how come you know that's not supposed to happen um so yeah there is there is one case there's a pretty obvious case of comeuppance that, that does occur though um but again i don't want to spoil too much more but kevin's right there are a lot of characters here and there there are a lot of like sort of side stories going on at the beginning as with most of these films and these side stories end up coming in to converge as these people have to deal with the catastrophe but then people disappear like into the background because the you know it's like the main two pretty people take up the the, the camera focus so you never you're never really sure who's with what group and, and, oh, something happened and who died and who didn't. And, you know, for a while there was like a group of, there, there's this group of Christians and I was never really sure how many of them were alive at one point because sometimes it would show a couple of them and then sometimes it would show more of them. And I'd be like, well, I thought they didn't make it. And you know, apparently they did. And it's just really confusing. And I think from that, from that technical sense, it's not delivering the storytelling, uh, as well as it should. Um, but yeah, this is a film all about eye candy and about things blowing up and, <coughs> excuse me, and big explosions. And, uh, you know, watching these two massive buildings basically, um, start to fall apart. And it does deliver on that aspect, that aspect. There are, you know, some tense moments. Um, it tries to get super emotional towards the end, not really successful for me. I don't know. Maybe Kevin feels a little bit differently. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think during the screening, Kevin, you were saying a couple times that it's really trying to be backdraft in, in some places. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And I think that this is a film you watch once, but you probably won't want to see it a second time. It, it, you know, it's a once is enough sort of popcorn matinee style film. Um, <laughs> with that in mind, you know, it's a solid TV. It, if you like these kind of catastrophe movies, it's, it's worth a rental, maybe a matinee, uh, but not much more than that. Uh, Kenneth in the chat room says, does anyone get cancer in the tower? Seems to have a Korean films a lot. Yeah. And in, in the last act, you know, just when everybody thought they've made, they, they've made it out safely. A, do a, a doctor comes up and says, I'm sorry, you've all inhaled smoke and you're all now, you all have now have 30 minutes left to live. Hmm. Um, the so, tower yeah. gets cancer. Yeah. The tower, the tower is, a, a, the tower is a cancer on society. Basically. <laughs> That's the message, right? And I'm the cure. Yeah. It's not a tumor. It's not. All right. Enough of that. Let us move on and talk about other things. Ah, why are my bumpers not working? All right. For West Screen, we are here to talk about the big feature from the Wachowskis. Skib, excuse me, the Wach... Well, I can never say their name correctly. Wachowskis. The Wachowski siblings... Used to be the Wachowski brothers, but no more. Uh, called Cloud Atlas. Um, so, Cloud Atlas. How can I tell you the story of Cloud Atlas? I can't, because it's so freaking long. Um, Cloud Atlas is, of course, uh, based on a famous book, by a novel by David Mitchell, written back in 2004, um, that basically what it does is it, it weaves six different narratives together. Um, and uh, these stories are all interrelated. Uh, the first narrative starts off in the South Pacific Ocean in about the mid-19th century, following a character named uh, Adam Ewing, uh, <coughs> who's basically on this voyage uh, to, to get home. Um, the second story takes place in, uh, you know, roughly about a 100-year time period later, in about the mid um, the mid twentieth century, in uh, Cambridge, England, uh, and also has I think it takes place a little bit in Edinburgh, uh, Scotland, and the third story, um, <coughs> roughly about fifty or no forty years later or so, um, takes place in San Francisco, California, following a young journalist, uh, Louisa Ray, who's played by um, uh, what's her name. Haley Berry. Haley yeah. Berry. Uh, the fourth story takes place in the modern day, 2012, in the United Kingdom, uh, following a 65-year-old publisher, played by uh, Jim Broadbent. And the fifth story in the future, 2144, uh, in Neo-Korea, uh, New Korea, and, or sorry, Neo-Seoul in, in uh, New Korea, and uh, follows a character named Sonmi451, who's sort of a genetically engineered fabricant or clone who works as a server in a restaurant and the final or the the sixth story um takes place in the far future which uh, wikipedia identifies as 2321 and follows uh, a character named zachary who's kind of living in this pope post-apocalyptic earth so you have these narratives from these six stories going on 
And they're all completely different stories, but they all have some commonality. They're all, at their core, they're about things like uh, love and loss and the, the, the struggle to survive. And in some ways, it's about the meaning of life. Uh, and so that sets up the, the narratives, and then the film basically jumps back and forth. Um, between these. And so you've got a pretty broad cast of actors. Um, Tom Hanks plays quite a few roles. Halle Berry, as I mentioned, she's in a couple roles. Jim Broadbent, Hugo Weaving, um, Jim Sturgis, um, correct me if I say this wrong, Kevin, uh, Duna Bae, is that correct? Bae, Bae Duna, Bae is the last name. She's a Korean actress. Yeah, Bae Duna um, uh, from Korea. Um, ben Wishwa, James Darcy, and <coughs> from China, um, Zhou Shun. Um, also appearing Keith David and uh, Susan Sarandon and Hugh Grant. So they, these are the core actors, and they actually play quite a few different roles in each of these uh, different narratives that, that are progressing forward. Um, I, I don't really want to say too much more uh, about the each of the narratives themselves, because it's really part of this movie is about discovery of the stories, I think. And, um, you know, I, I've, I wrestled with, as I was sort of writing down notes, how much I should get into the story, because I think if I reveal too many of the details, it kind of detracts from the story, more so than a normal movie. Um, I went into this not having read the book, not really knowing much more than what I'd seen in a couple trailers. And I think my appreciation for the film was greater for it as a result. Um, but first, let me say, okay, wow, this is a long film. It's just short of three hours with no intermission. Um, and basically, as I mentioned, six stories in one that are intermixed. And so you've basically got like three or, you know, six short films, you know, of roughly half hour length <coughs> jumping back and forth. Now, they're not all exactly... You know, some get a little bit more time than others, but, um, you know, that's basically what they've done here. Um, and that can be a lot to take in for anyone, even a, even a film buff like myself. Um, and so because of that, because you've got so much material, because you've got these six different storylines, because you've got, you know, all of these very highly renowned actors and actresses playing several different roles each, you know, there's bound to be stuff that you're going to like, and there's bound to be of stuff you're not going to like, you know, because there's just so much here. It can't all be great, you know, stuff. There's just going to be parts of it that you end up enjoying and parts that you don't enjoy. And that's probably true of any movie. But I think when you get into movies that are much longer, then you run that risk of, you know, being more controversial and being more, you know, having people pick at it more. It's like it becomes, you know, like a television series or a mini series. At some point, there's going to be the down episode, the episode that's kind of dull and that nobody really likes while you're waiting to get to the better episodes and ultimately the season finale. Um, <clears throat> so for myself, the things that I liked, all right, this movie, strongly Buddhist in, in design, um, it it tries to make these connections about past lives and future lives. And, and that's one of the reasons why they have actors playing 
you know, di different roles. Now, for some people, that's going to be a point of contention, particularly if you're not Buddhist. For myself, uh, I think that's a wonderful point to see brought forth in a film. Um, it is a point, you know, it's a very philosophical point, and the Wachowskis, you know, you go back to films like The Matrix, and that's been something that's sort of a central theme that they've played with before. Um, but for some people, that's probably going to be, you know, uh, something that they don't want to think too much about, and, and that's okay. Uh, so that's not going to work for everybody. The stories here are, for me, were interesting, and the way that the stories were told were in many ways different genres of film, which I think was another interesting aspect. So, you know, you've got um, sort of a dramatic romance in one genre, you've got a bit of a, uh, you know, futuristic action, you've got sort of post-apocalyptic survival, you've got a detective story going on in one, and, you know, so th there's really this interesting mix that's going on, but you're going to end up liking some of these stories more than others based on your own preference. You know, I'm preferential to sci-fi. Those tended to be my favorite segments. And so then when you're suddenly cast out of those segments into another, you know, five or ten minutes of narrative, you'll be wishing to get back to, you know, one of the other stories, perhaps. And that at times can also affect the film experience to some extent. Um... But, um, so, you know, but that was a point that I also think that was very enjoyable, at least for me. The performances were very good overall, and, you know, I appreciated the fact that they were challenging these actors to try and do different things within different stories. Now, as to things I disliked, um, they had actors playing different races. And I'm, I'm not saying that this is this is anything that should be controversial. I think there's nothing wrong with a you know, a black actor playing a white character or a white actor trying to play a black character. I know that some people would would take offense to that. And in films in the past, you know, they've, they've done so. But because of the makeup in some of these, it became a bit distracting. So um, in a couple instances, there's kind of like an uncanny valley thing happening um, where you're looking at an actress... You know, the source, for example, they have the Korean actors done up in sort of Victorian era, era as a Victorian era character. And it's not that she can't act the part. It's that the makeup makes her look really weird and and strange and odd and distracting to some extent. Um, and this happens the reverse, too. For example, they take Hugo Weaving and, and one of the other actors and they make them Asian. And it just looks weird. And it's it's kind of you're, you're just kind of staring at screen going, what is that you know for for a while uh, at least I was and um, it, it it did take me out of the film in a couple of moments the one exception I would say is um, uh, Zoshun plays uh, I think the wife of Tom Hanks in the post-apocalyptic earth sister sister uh, well, it was his sister okay yeah, yeah. And, but she looked really good she looked very convincing uh, in the makeup they had her in um, but some of the other makeup jobs were just uh, just kind of odd to look at, very Uncanny Valley-ish. Um, and sometimes the narrative jumps as they jump through these stories did not always feel as natural as some of the other cuts, um, or relevant in some cases. And one of the things I kept trying to find through the, the, the course of the film was 
the connections and some of the ras- rationale for the story shifts. Because at some point, at some points, I found myself wanting to stay with one particular storyline, you know, but then I'd get forced out and I'd be like, well, no, go back. You know, I, w- I want to, I want to, to see more of that storyline. And I know that there's a rationale for this. And I think that's because they were trying to make it feel more like a book. You know, a lot of times when you've got different plot lines running in a book, you've got a chapter that focuses on one character, and then the next chapter, you know, it's about a completely different thing that will with a different character that might become relative, relevant 10 chapters later. And so, you know, it does kind of have the that, that kind of pacing, that kind of narrative pacing that you would find in a book, but I don't know if it's going to work for a lot of people uh, on, on the big screen. Um, and finally, I think the... The one of the things that I disliked is that it seemed to really build up to something, but then it didn't seem to get to whatever that thing it was trying to build up to was, at least for me. Um, and so I, I, I don't know, I don't want to say I felt let down when I got to the end of the experience, but it felt like it was incomplete somehow. I don't know. Um, I think it's going to be a very interesting film to go through and rewatch many, many times. I think it would be very interesting to perhaps break this film down into its individual stories and see if see how the stories play just running on their own. So you take you know each story from a time period and you just you know run it as a you know short film by itself. And this would be a very interesting experiment or an option for Blu-ray. Right? Are you listening out there, distributors? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, at the very least, it would be a very interesting student experiment. Um, but uh, being able to play with the narrative as a as an option, a feature, could be a selling point. Will there be a longer director's cut? Um, I wouldn't mind seeing one if there's more to be seen. Um, maybe that's a thing that uh, Kevin can discuss in just a moment. Um, again, I liked most of the stories, but I was partial to the science fiction, to the to the sort of the two later stories uh, of the four. Uh, that's just me. Um, I will say that this is a film that I'm probably not fully ready to understand. I, I, I tweeted today, I joked, I said, I'm not quite sure what to make of uh, uh, Cloud Atlas just yet. Ask me in my next life. And uh, I, st- I do kind of feel that way. I, I, I feel I need to watch this film again. I need to probably sit through multiple scene, multiple viewings of it. And in some ways, I'm not saying it's on par with a, you know, a 2001 by any way, shape, or form. But with 2001, it took me a long time to really appreciate the gravity of that film. And I'm wondering if this film's going to end up being the same way. Or I'm wondering if this is just... You know, a gimmick because it's such a long film and it's it's doing things that I'm not used to that, you know, maybe there's not all that much to it. Maybe I haven't missed a bunch. Maybe there's just, you know, the things that I, I need to go back and try and find aren't really there. But I won't know until I get back and, and, and I experience it a couple more times, I think. Um, but I will say this that the film has interested me enough that I do want to see it again. I would like to see it on a better screen. Um, I think it would look nice in IMAX. I'd like to see it in IMAX if I could. I saw it on a fairly small screen. Um, and I'm kind of motivated to read the book. And I think when a film does this for me, uh, 
it points to a success on some level. So uh, there are quite a few Easter eggs for sci-fi fans. Uh, I won't spoil them here, but uh, you know you can be on the lookout for them. I will say this, Hugo Weaving channels way too much Agent Smith in this film, in a couple of his characters. So stop it, Hugo Weaving. Stop being Agent Smith. Um, but other than that, I will say see it, but don't drink anything, and realize that it may take you more than one life to figure out. Kevin? Okay. Um, so, sorry, I should just call first. <coughs> okay, this is good for editing. Um, yeah, Easter is spiritual themes. I get it. It's, you know, about the, um, you know, how, how we repeat the same things that we do over and over again and, and, uh, different lives and, you know, uh, um, spirituality and reincarnation, things like that. It's a very, it's, it's a topic that's, that's very relatable to an Eastern audience as opposed to a Western one, I suppose. Um, the clue here to understand the film is one birthmark to rule them all and one to bind them. <laughs> That's great. I didn't think of that. <laughs> Just look at the birthmark, and that is your clue to understanding the whole thing. Um, <clears throat> it's it's something that I know now, and I'll probably have to think about it again when I see it, or that's something I'll keep in mind when I see it. So here's some that that that, that should help you a little bit. It's not really a spoiler anyway. Um, it's a very ambitious film. Um, it is the most expensive independent film in history because there is no no studio will take it on on its own so uh, actually um media asia the, the the distributor here in hong kong who usually does you know local films or uh china hong kong co-production they're one of the they're one of the financiers of the film that's why they became distributors because they actually put in a bit of money and uh <clears throat> and it was a very difficult film to finance um especially since it cost a hundred million dollars to produce um and actually the credit also goes to um tom tickworth uh, the Wachowskis directed three of the segments, and Tom Tickwar, who is best known for Run, Little Run, and uh, Prince and the Warrior, he directed the other half um, with separate camera crews, and he also co-scored the film. So actually, Tom Tickwar, a very huge... Uh, he also co-wrote the film, of course, with the Wachowskis. So um, to need two two directors, to, to, to uh, or two sets of directors, to direct and write and do all this stuff. Um, and it's a super ambitious film, and for that, I cannot just dismiss it. I can't come out and say, oh, it sucked. It's not that easy. Right? Um, it's not completely successful. Okay? There's a lot of problems with the film. But they're aiming so high that I appreciate, I admire their courage. I admire, and I admire their ambition. Um, of course... Since it's adapted from a novel, you can't say it's original. So because you know David Mitchell, the writer, came up with the idea first. So um, so even if it's not a particularly creative film, um, it's a very ambitious film, and it's um, it's a very um, uh, um, brave film for anyone to take on. Um, so I like I said, I admire that. The um, I also expect them to to kind of keep things um, uh, very uh, how do I say organized, you know like. Okay, here I'll tell the story for a while, and then I'll go to the next story, and then I'll wrap up, and then just essentially tell the story in two parts, or two pieces, or one huge piece at a time. But uh, actually, the, the stories go back and forth pretty constantly after the first uh, twenty minutes, after they're done uh, introducing everyone. Um, 
so it keeps the audience on their toes. It keeps um, everything going. You're going. You're essentially traveling through the rhythm of the stories, all six stories at the same time. So you get the rise, the climax, and of course the fall, all coming at the same time. And I never felt like I was lagging behind in terms of following the stories. It's not very. They're not difficult stories to follow because essentially, like you said, Paul, just six short films. Um, and if you remember, if you remember what happened. Um, it's not that difficult. I, but however, I was a little overwhelmed. Um, so when you were talking about director's cut, um, if I would, if I want a director's cut, it's not because I want to see more stuff because I kind of want to see a more relaxed telling uh, of the film. Um, unfortunately, in China, they cut 30, 40 minutes of the film. Uh, not just because of censorship, but also because of the length. Uh, apparently there was a huge test group. Uh, they tested 400 people and they came up with the idea. So they cut the film both based on both um, censorship and and the um, the pacing um, um, of the film. And I would like to see what they cut out of the China version, but it's just not for me. It's not like something I want to do to spend 140 minutes to watch an incomplete version of Cloud Atlas. Um, so I may not end up doing that until you know way later when. Uh, Maybe there's like a, a, a China DVD or something, and I'll check it out. Um, the editing is more based on the the emotional, the rhythm of the stories, or uh, you know, connecting images between stories rather than um, um, anything other real significant. Um, and it's not perfect, but it's actually quite impressive the way the editor uh, juggles the six stories um, and and does it fairly in a fairly fluid way. Um, the person I was watching with did not think that way. Um, she's also a film student, so I guess she was kind of looking into it in terms of technical uh, point of view. But for me, I, I I thought it was quite impressive how how much the directors and the editor were able to handle essentially six different films directed by six different crews and two two different sets of directors, and to uh, bring that all together into one coherent thing is, is a very difficult task, and uh, so it was impressive. I, but the thing is, I'm not sure if it needed, if the film needed six stories to tell all the story to 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 make its point. Um, I have my favorite stories. I, my favorite stories are the Louisa Louisa Ray mystery, the uh, 1970 portion, um, the 2012 portion with the publisher uh, breaking off the old uh, elder elderly home, and the um, the later, uh, the second the fifth story I suppose the about the uh, cyber cyborg. Cyborg server on the run. Those are my three favorite stories. But I felt like the story about the uh, composer in England um, didn't really particularly need to be there. I mean, I get it, but it was almost it wasn't as dramatic as the other stories. And to me, it really didn't quite hit the mark as as well as my three favorite stories did in terms of um, being dramatic enough or or or, or uh, delivering a message. Um, <clears throat> apparently, all the actors actually the idea of the idea, the idea of actors playing, um, being in all six films, essentially most of the act, main actors, being in all six sections was to save money, which makes sense. But um, the experiment kind of works out because then you start the the impressive part is to watch how where the actors show up in different stories. Uh, for example, you never guess where Joe Shun shows up in uh in uh or no, you never guess how Bay Duna shows up in nineteen seventies part, or you never guess how. Tom Hanks shows up in the uh, in the in the in the in the futuristic uh, thing, 
or how Halle, Halle Berry shows up in the English the English composer part. You know, it, it's kind of fun to keep keep track that way, um, and and it does help people keep keep track of the film because when you're trying to cast, essentially you have two hundred speaking roles or so, and you're casting two hundred different stars. It was never going to work out. So um, so the experiment works out both for the directors and I guess um, uh, for the audience. Uh, you're right. For example, Beiduna shows up in the in the uh, the first portion. Uh, in a very strange role that was essentially created for makeup, and it was a little off-putting at first, but you know, after a while, you just get kind of get used to it. I think, um, like you said, it's not very long. The film about credits runs about 162 minutes, and and perhaps it doesn't need to be, you know, because of the stories that that maybe didn't need to be told, or 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 uh, because uh, they could be they could um, uh, cut out some of the stuff. But um, that's the director's vision. But uh, I'm not going to pull a China and say, you know, cut my own version or something. But if the director perhaps felt that the film was too long and wanted to cut it, I would not, I would not, uh, I would not object. Um, I'm not sure when I want to sit through it again. Like I said, I'm not going to sit through the China version just to sit through an incomplete version. But I would like to see it again um, now that I know where it was heading or what the film is like. I would like to go back and, and try to connect the stories of course, I already connected it through Wikipedia. Thank you, but um, I want to go and put it all back together in my head again uh, while watching the film. And I think you know it was a huge flop in the states. It, it's not an easy film. It's a challenging film, and um, it's not a film that you know it's not made for the multiplex. As as the studios essentially told the filmmakers that this is not a film that that you know one studio would dare to finance and apparently the, 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 the audience of America has proven them right. So maybe it's a film that people will slowly come around to in a few years. But of course I was hoping that people would, would see, would say the same about speed racer, but that never happened. So sadly, um, maybe it would get lost in the streams of time, so to speak, maybe in the, in the next life, someone will find a copy of this film and come to appreciate it. Um, and and for me, I felt like the maybe the toughest part is to watch it for the first time. When I when I revisit it, it may be be better. I don't know yet, but I, I I would definitely like to do that, and I think I would like it in the future. So uh, yeah, um, definitely see it, but uh, go in prepared, know what you're going into, um, and I don't mean by reading all the stories already, but know that it will be. You know, juggling. You have to juggle six stories for three, uh, for two and a half hours. Know that that's what you're gonna have to do, and you know, and the birthmark. Know the birthmark, and then, and then you'll be fine. I think. So see it. Yeah, I think you know one of the other things that sort of struck me about the film was that there's this idea of of the story, and how our you know a person's story, which is their life, ends up becoming you know, a story for someone else, right? So, for example, like the, the first story, you've got uh, the guy, uh, <coughs> the, the, the guy on the ship, and he's, like, writing a journal. Mm. And then that journal ends up becoming, um, you know, I think it was uh, uh, significant in, in one of the other stories, and then in the second story, um, you've got the guy, he's kind of narrating through his letters to his, his lover. And then those letters become, 
you know, significant for another one of the other stories. Not significant in like a a crucial way, but they become some some you know it becomes <coughs> a point of interest for characters in the later time periods, right? Um, and so you know, this is an idea about not not really about history, but about storytelling, you know, and how what what seem what might seem as mundane our mundane life can actually become you know something that um someone else finds interesting or intriguing you know long after we're gone but at the same time there's this you know you go back to sort of the, the eastern spirituality side of it <coughs> there are things going on there are basic sort of core ideas uh, that I talked about earlier, you know, things like survival and love and greed that constantly recur, you know, and it doesn't matter which time period you're looking at, that these same themes keep coming back and sort of that kind of points to, um, you know, our human, maybe, maybe some people would see it as a flaw in our humanity. Maybe some people would see it as sort of a challenge that we have to rise above or to overcome. And so I think all these things are touched on, but they're not apparently clear. And I think that for a general audience that maybe there's just so much here, you know, it's, it's, it's like, um, it's like a, a very informationally dense film that's going right. on. And there's just, so I'm, I'm sure that I missed a ton of stuff and I was prepared. I was going in saying, all right, I know I've got to pay attention and I've got to look for clues and signs and, 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 you know, little hints and things. And I'm sure there's a ton of stuff that, that I missed. And it, it does, it does make me a bit sad that this film did not do very well in the States. Actually, uh, there is, there is a film that does this similar theme better. Uh, it's a Japanese film called fish story. And it's about how one, a song from a punk song in the 1970s will come to save the world in the end. And it, it kind of brings, so it tells four separate stories in like an omnibus way, but directed by one director. And in the last five minutes, it brings all that stuff back together, show you the process by recalling the same story. Mm. And I thought that was simpler and actually a, a more successful uh, um, way of delivering that kind of same similar message. And what's it called? Fish Story. Fish Story, Not as opposed to a Fishy Story with uh, Kenny B and Maggie Chung, right? No, no, not Fishy Story. Uh, fish Story, yes. <laughs> Which is also not a terrible movie. That's a pretty good movie if you get a chance to watch it. Um, all right, so I think we've uh, we've rambled on enough about Cloud Atlas. Uh, do get a chance to see it if you haven't. Uh, but as Kevin says, be prepared. And like I said, don't take a big drink with you. All right, let us move on. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. Okay, we got an email from a listener named Chun. Says, great show. Look forward to your show every week. Please do more video pics. Uh, yes, I do know that that is something that uh, I would really like to do on a weekly basis. It's just a matter of time. And the burden of all that I place fully upon myself. Um, and hopefully that is one of the things that I will get 
get to do more of is getting the video picks back in the show uh, through 2013. I will do my best to try and uh, to get on top of that. Uh, he goes on to say, on a personal note, how does it feel for you and Kevin, especially you, to be an expat living in Hong Kong? My wife from Taiwan is always pushing me to relocate to Taiwan to have more job opportunities. Having lived in the States for over 30 years, I feel really afraid to move to a country I've never vis ever visited before. Even though I'm Asian and I love Asian films and my culture, uh, I feel is a, it's quite a big move. Any friendly advice you can offer would be greatly appreciated. Thanks again for your show, and I'll keep listening. Uh, well, thanks for the email, Chun. Um, and I think we can, you know, uh, Kevin can comment on this from a slightly different perspective uh, than me. And um, it's too bad we don't have Ross here because I think uh, Ross is a uh, Ross is born in the U.S., but his parents are from Taiwan, if I remember correctly. Yes. Um, so he might have a little bit more insight into actually, you know, <coughs> moving to Taiwan or, or, or specifically with Taiwan culture. Um, now, let's see. As for myself, uh, being an expat living in Hong Kong, um, for m my main advice would be you have to want to go there, right? Um, I've met a ton of expats in Hong Kong who came here because they were on a big package, right? They got a job offer uh, to go overseas and, and they got a ton of money and, you know, they're living the life and they hate Hong Kong, right? They, they're just here for the paycheck. I've met a ton of people like that and I don't like those people at all. Uh, I don't like to associate with those people. I, you know, I've run into them mostly through, um, you know, the, the occasional business event or, or my work, you know, something through work. And, uh, you know, I really just can't stand being around those people. And, uh, you know, they, they all tend to live in certain areas. And that's why I live in a village in the new territories is because not many of them, uh, come up, come out to this way. But, um, you know, the, you, you've got to really want to live in a place that you're thinking about moving to. So you need to know about the place. I, you know, growing up watching Shaw Brothers movies and, and stuff you know, Bruce Lee films, Jackie Chan, all that stuff, Japanese cartoons. I loved Asian culture for as long as I can remember. I don't know where I got it from. I don't know if it was nature or nurture, maybe my past life. I've got a star somewhere, you know, hidden that I haven't found yet. Who knows? Okay. But um, something always attracted me to the media and the culture of the region. And at some point, I really got into Hong Kong cinema uh, and... and I'd say it was this in my early 20s, and I just knew that I, I something about Hong Kong fascinated me. I started reading more about it, started learning Cantonese as much as I could on my own, watching more movies, and just got to the point where I said, you know, I want to try and live there one day. And as fortunate to have it, I think I've told this story before, a um, couple things fell into place, and I got the opportunity to come over here and give it a go, and I never went back. Um, but I was really, I, you know, I really studied up on, you know, the subject. I got books about Hong Kong. I tried to read more about Chinese culture. There's a great series of books out there. I think they're still out there, um, called Culture Shock. And I'm sure there's one for Taiwan, you know, so look for a book called Culture Shock Taiwan. And it will tell you, 
you know, especially if you're Asian, especially if you've got a wife from Taiwan, I'm sure she can tell you as much as in, is in the book, but it'll tell you all the things to be prepared for. And so you want to prepare yourself as much as possible. Then I'd say, you know, if you're white, if you've got a wife, you know, and you've never been to Taiwan, she must have relatives in Taiwan, I'm assuming, you know, go take some time off, go spend some time with the relatives, you know, live with the relatives, don't live in a hotel, see what it's like to actually live with people and around people, not as a tourist, but, you know, as a general person, if you can do that, and it seems okay, then you're one step closer to figuring out if you could actually, you know, relocate there. Now, when I moved here, I got a really good bit of advice from the roommate that I was living with who'd lived in Hong. He's, he's an American like myself, but he'd lived in Hong Kong before. And he said, you got to give it six months because after six months, you're going to get hit by the culture shock if it's going to hit you. You're going get, to get, get, get that longing for getting back into your own culture and, and, and getting back home, and you're going to want to fly, fly out of there immediately. Something's going to happen. You know, you might have to go to a squat toilet, or you might get crammed in one day during rush hour on the MTR. Something's going to happen that's going to push your button the wrong way, and, you, you, you know, you, you might snap if you're not prepared for it. So he said, be ready for that. Um, and I was ready for it. And I'd say it never really happened for me. I do get homesick from time to time, but I go back once a year, visit my parents. And then while I'm there after a couple weeks, I get homesick for Hong Kong and I'm ready to get back here and get back into my routine. So, um, yeah, my best advice would be if you've got some opportunities, you know, use relatives if you can go to Taiwan, try it out, see if you like it. If you don't head back, but if you do, then you can start thinking about making perhaps a bit more of a permanent move. Um, now, Kevin, you've got a little bit of a different case because you were here and then you were in the U.S. and now you're here again. So what kind of perspective can you put on this? Well, actually, I was, I was here and then I was in America. I grew up in America and now I was in Japan for a year for studying abroad. And then I moved back here. Um, so I, I've had my share of um, uh, different cultures seeing different cultures and um honestly I, I and i've seen this up uh, on a personal you know from from other people is that these days if you're moving to hong kong for for movies don't because because you know when you're in the states and and you're watching asian films you get to be a little more choosy you don't have to watch everything and you watch what you like and then you realize and you and you see it um and you see it how do i say you watch it at your own pace, right? You don't have to watch everything new, right? When you do something like 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 we do, but Paul and I do and, and Ross does, is that it's very easy to become the solution uh, when you see how it is uh, uh, out here. <coughs> um, so <clears throat> know, know for sure why you're moving here and, and try to make sure that thing that you like that you're moving here for will be around. For example, you're moving for your wife. Uh, in Chun's case, He's moving for his wife. His wife's going to be around, I think. Um, and to so that's a good reason to move to Taiwan. Uh, like Paul said, make sure you know uh, try to do the non-tourist thing, of course. Um, and 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 work out a routine that 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 soothes you. You know that um, uh, find ways of de-stressing out, and especially in, in Asian cities, uh, Taipei and Hong Kong and and Tokyo, and you always find ways to de-stress because. Um, not only the, the the routine, the daily routines of you know jobs and work. Not not only does that stress you out. Plus, 
you got the whole culture shock thing, right? Um, so, so for me, even for me, when I'm used to a very slow life in, in, in the States and I come back to Hong Kong and it's like, you know, stuck in the MTR every day. And I've, I've grown up to not, to not be used to crowded environment and I never really like crowded environment. So, you know, in Hong Kong, I find ways to get away from that. I don't go out on the weekends or I, I stay home more on the weekends or, um, when I, when, when I have time, I don't take the MTR, I take a bus, uh, because I get to sit and I get to look at the view, things like that. Um, it's always good. It's always about the little things. Um, even when I was in Japan, uh, of course, an America, me moving to the States when I was nine, it's very different. It's, it's very different from moving, uh, uh, from the United States to, uh, <coughs> to Asia at the age of like 40, right? It's very different because, um, I was still grow. I was still growing up and I, I was still trying to develop my values and, and still try to develop language. You know, I didn't learn English until nine, but you know, learning English at nine is a lot easier than trying to learn Chinese at forty or or thirty. You know, I don't know what Chun's actual ages, but uh, so that is also one thing you have to think about. It's very different. Um, the 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 West to East immigration effect is very different from um, um us immigrants from the East to the West because yes, we go and then we grow up and then we adapt. And English is kind of a world, you know, worldwide spoken language anyway. It's not like uh, Chinese, um, so that's that's also very difficult. Um, but of course, it's a huge move. So the most important thing is to find, know the reason you're moving here. Don't just come here for some thing like culture or uh, <clears throat> have something that's that's really that you 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 that will make you want to stay. If you love money. And you got a really great deal working for an accounting firm or something, great. You know, you get paid tons of money and, and you live very, very nicely, possibly even nicer than you would in the States. Okay, that's great. Or your wife wants to make you move there. Your wife will be happier. Um, um, and if your wife makes you happy, that's great too. Um, I came back to Hong Kong because Hong Kong is my home and I like coming to Hong Kong. Um, I had to move to America because... America is where my family is, and my family is in America. Even though I'm not moving back, um, I don't regret, I guess, going to America. I went to Japan because you know I wanted to learn about the culture. I wanted to live in there, and like I said, that is the one thing that really affected me, that really changed my life because it was something I interested in, and I got what I wanted. So it's really important to find that reason that won't go away right away when you move here, or that will make you disillusioned. Um, and most importantly. If you if you end up finding yourself whining every day about the the place you've moved to, then get the hell out, really, because you have a choice. You choose to move here. It's not like it's not like you were a kid and you you got you got dragged by your by your family, right, to go to another place. You moved here on your own accord. And if you can't find the thing that make you happy, and if you're being miserable every day, then really just find something else because you're a grown adult and you know how to find make you happy. Um, so that's really my advice because whining doesn't complaining every day makes you miserable and it makes the people around you miserable and, and it makes, and, and it really kind of, um, makes you wonder what you're doing here. What is this? Why'd you make this choice? So go and you're a grown adult. So go and make a choice to make yourself happier. That's important. Um, so yeah, that's sorry. Ramble on a little bit. That's uh, how I feel. Yeah. There's a, I don't remember if it's in the culture shock books or something else I read, but there's a, one of the books said that actually there are some, some people are better geared for 
making a, a, a cultural shift, you know, immerse, getting immersed into a culture that's not their own uh, than other people's. And I don't know if it gets down to sort of the, you know, the, the personality types or, or anything like that. Um, but you, you, you kind of need to be in a mindset of you're going to go <coughs> with the flow, you know, sort of when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Yes. If you're not prepared to do that, then you're probably going to end up being unhappy because what you'll end up finding is you'll find yourself saying, well, how come it's not like this? This is the way things are where I'm from, or how come it's not like this, or how come I can't, you know, sure, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of problems in Hong Kong, but there's a lot of problems everywhere. One of my pet peeves is the is the people on Twitter who, you know, they, they post the hashtag Hong Kong problems all the time. And a lot of the stuff they end up posting, not really a a problem, you know, it's a problem where they come from, but it's not a problem in Hong Kong for a lot of Hong Kong people. So yeah, yeah. we've got things, we've got pollution issues, but it's all, it's all relative. I mean, you look at our air compared with Beijing air, it's like night and day. Um, I, I, you know, I don't remember if it was, if it was, uh, Shelly Crazier or somebody else, uh, they, they kind of reprimanded me one day cause I was making a comment about, you know, how our, our air quality has gotten worse and it has in the past, you know, 12 years. Um, but compared with, you know, Beijing, our air quality is super great. Um, so yeah, he was right. And I said, like, oh, yeah, yep, you're right. Touche. I, I shouldn't complain as much as I do. So I stopped complaining about the air quality. Um, but you know, some people will complain about, you know, they'll say, you know, Hong Kong people are rude. I don't see Hong Kong people being any more rude than any other people in a big city. I've been to New York. You know, it, it, it's big city life. It, it's just one of the things you have to get used to, you know. Yeah, the MTR is crowded. If you go during rush hour, you're going to get packed in like a sardine or you're going to have to wait. You know, you're going to have to be prepared for it. Um, customer service, not something they teach well over here. You know, it's gotten better in recent years, but, you know, you're not going to get super great customer service. Um, you know, people cutting queues. Uh, I remember I was at uh, one of the malls, I think it was Festival Walk, and... You know, there's two uh, there's two elevators, and people don't line up for the elevator. There's no there's no like no line on the ground. They just kind of gather around the front, and if you m work your way to the front, then you know you get in first, kind of a thing. And so there are these two girls. They looked like they were like secondary school or high school girls, and there was like a couple foreign ladies, guessing they were British based on their accent. Could be wrong, but uh, the girls they kind of sidled up to the side of the elevator. And the foreign ladies, they look like about 50 or something, they started reprimanding these two girls. And it's saying, you can't cut the queue. There's a queue. You don't jump in front of people. And I was just standing there going, lady, there's no queue. There's like a group of us. We're not in order. You know, and, and she's reprimanding these two girls. And I, I, I think the girls understood them because, you know, most of the school students here have to learn English. But they just kind of gave her the look like we have no idea what you're saying. And I, it was all I could do to not laugh because, you know, these ladies are making, you know, uh, you know, basically butts of themselves in public because everybody is kind of looking at this lady as she's making a scene. Nobody cares. The girls ended up going right into the elevator and the lady was just like, <laughs> you know, huffing and puffing. And I'm thinking maybe they queue in England. I don't know. Nobody queues for an elevator here. It's just not done unless they've got the, the little, you know, sort of the... The rope. The rope things, you know. They've got those in some places, but most places don't. 
you know, so nobody gets in line. Um, so, you know, stuff like that kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah, kind of it, irritates very me. Important. It's very important to not, to not put expectations um, or don't think that your custom is the customs yeah. they're used worldwide, including America. Yeah, exactly. Um, even the, down to the smallest things. I was, you know, I've been asked, oh, yeah, this movie have a midnight show. I'm going to watch the Avengers midnight show. I'm like, there are no freaking midnight shows for people work in the morning. Yeah. Uh, or, or like, um, uh, yeah, that's something, that's something I do is that when I wait for the, um, oh no. Well, yeah, those things, you know. Yeah. Or, well, or expecting American things, or yeah, just don't don't throw your values down in Hong Kong, thinking, yeah, uh, blah blah. I think this is great. Well, no, this is the way it should be because that's the way we do it in America. Well, no, this is not the way we do it in Hong Kong. Yeah. So even move somewhere, find out the local customs. For example, I'm sure many people in when they go to Japan, they wouldn't know. Um, uh, 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 you you can't take out the phone and you can't call anyone. You know, Hong Kongers would not. It's not something that Hong Kongers would understand. Or when it says priority seat, yeah, you don't sit in the priority seat. Yeah, you know, those, those local customs thing you, you kind of pick up. And I guess that is the, the point of talking to locals and not trying to throw your own values on there and just understand why, why the local people do it the way they do it and then try to adapt to that. My biggest pet peeve locally is the squat toilet. Okay. <laughs> but that's because I'm, you know, overweight white guy. Oh, I hate the squat toilet. Sorry. <laughs> I hate the squat <laughs> toilet, but. I'm prepared for the squat toilet, you know, you know, just, uh, where were we? We were out at, uh, the wet market, um, last weekend or the weekend before. And we'd had breakfast. I think I had uh, milk tea at Taiheng. My wife said, Oh, that's going to do it to you. And sure enough, uh, I had to go and went to the wet market and just nothing I could find, but squat toilet. And I was like, uh, gotta go, gotta do it. So you just gotta learn. Um, really? you know, I, I still can't do squat toilet. I just hold it until I get home. Yeah. And that's how I live. You know, hey, yeah. I don't I don't go walking around and yell in the wet, middle of wet market. Why don't you have freaking sitting toilets? I wouldn't yeah. have a sitting toilet in a wet market anyway. I just go home. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, you just have to if you if you've got an open mind and you, there will be stuff that gets on your nerves for sure. And, you know, you can be the, the, the easy, most easy going person in the world. And, you know, there's bound to be stuff that annoys you. But if you're prepared to let things slide and learn how things are different and, and, and do things differently. Um, and if you have an option, you, you need a return <coughs> option or you need, you need a window of release. So if you do decide to move to Taiwan, you know, um, have a thing set up so that you can go back to the States for a couple weeks, you know, and you can get back to some of the things that you're not going to be able to find in Taiwan. You know, you'll be able to, eat some of the food or, or, you know, pursue some of the activities or some of those things that you enjoy now that you may not have access to, um, if you go there. But if, if you just keep an open mind and, and if you're prepared beforehand, if you study up as much as you can, um, I think you'll be okay. And I guess one final thing, it's something I realized recently is that don't ever say, I like this place, but not the people because the place wouldn't be the way it is without the people. Yeah. So, so you have to realize, then you try to understand what is it about the people that makes the place. Um, yeah, I don't like that Hong Kong people can be rude. I don't like that Hong Kong people can be, you know, they can be temperamental. But the fact is that they have, they have a really quick, they, they move fast and they think fast and they think they're on their feet. And yes, they get impatient. And that's what makes Hong Kong what it is. You know, fast moving city where things get done quickly. Um, 
so you just kind of understand, you know, uh, don't think, no, realize that the, the, the people associate the place or people makes the place. So uh, try to understand that. All right. I think that's going to do it, folks. If you would like to be part of the show, of course, you can head over to Concast. That's our website at concast.com. K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. Um, or drop by and, you know, drop us a line on iTunes. We'd be happy to hear some feedback from you there. Uh, Twitter, you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast for show notes and updates. Uh, twitter.com slash foxlore if you're interested in my uh, daily musings and ramblings from time to time. And uh, twitter.com slash thegoldenrock if you'd like to follow Mr. Ma, and I urge you to do so. Uh, he often tweets about film news and updates and sends us pictures of... Uh, Michael Wong with Jack <laughs> and all kinds of interesting stuff, uh, film-related and even more. Uh, oh, and, and congratulations to Ikin Chan and Yo-Yo Mung for the wedding. Oh, uh, yeah. Ikin and, and Yo-Yo, a couple local celebrities getting married. That's Yo-Yo Mung, not Yo-Yo Ma, the character from uh, My Wife is 18. Um, <clears throat> where was I? Oh, yes, Gmail. If you'd like to drop us a line over on email, you can, that is uh, eastscreen at gmail.com. You can uh, leave us some feedback or send us a question, comment. We'll talk about it here on the air. If you'd like to, you can even send us an audio file, and we'll play it here on the show. Um, Check us out on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash eastswests. You can find show notes and some some of our updates and links over there. As We're also on Google+. Um, That is, um, you can look for me, but we actually have a movie group. Uh, that's called Chinese Language Cinema. That is a community that I would urge you to go over and join. Um, we are still sort of developing that, so it's a bit small right now, but hopefully it will grow more over time. You can catch us on Stitcher. Listen to us your, on your iPhone, your Android phone, your BlackBerry, and your WebOS phone. Stitcher is smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at stitcher.com. Stitcher Smart Radio, it's the smarter way to listen to radio, and we thank them for their support. Additional thanks to Rob Gubbers of Schnauzer Studios for our theme, Ross Chen of Love HK Film for helping us arrange movie nights here in Hong Kong, uh, the K-Man, Kevin Ma, for sticking with me for 139, soon to be 140 episodes, and of course, all of you, the listeners, for being with us each and every week. Special shout out to the chat room, some of the folks in there tonight, uh, um, Kenneth, uh, Hong Kong Dave, Blue Summers, I think I saw earlier, Marco Spomberg, I think he dropped by for a bit. Um, if you're out there, you're listening live or you're listening to us in podcast form, uh, thank you for doing so. And uh, we like the fact that you're out there and uh, that you like our show. Next episode, 140. Um, what are we going to be talking about? Looks like we've got uh, the new Stephen Chow film coming up, Journey to the West, Conquering Demons. I say Stephen Chow, but he's not actually in it. He's just directing. Um, but I'm looking forward to that. They're having some pre-me- uh, promo screenings this weekend. So we've already gotten tickets for that. Uh, this is not officially released until next week, right? Or two weeks? The 7th. So yeah, next week. Next week um, as sort of a, one of the Chinese New Year releases. So we'll talk about that. And um, we were going to do it this week, but I thought I'd push it to next week because it's a little bit more appropriate giving the uh, East Screen film we're going to be covering, and that is the West Screen film Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters. So hunting, conquering demons, and hunting witches. They should go hand in hand, right? Um, Yeah, all of that and much more will be on our next show. Until then, this is East Screen, West Screen, wishing you good viewing. Uh, Hope you have 
lots of good reincarnations and we'll see you next week see you in the next life everybody Sweet